0: Would you please join me and stand as we read from the text this morning? I will be reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verse 5 through 15, in the New Revised Standard Version. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you are praying... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray this way Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The Word of God. Please be seated. Happy New Year's, everyone. (laughs) I've been been missing for a little bit, so this is my New Year sermon. We get to start in February, but it has been such a great pleasure to be able to worship along and and, um, have such a phenomenal pastoral team to hear the word. Uh, Man, I, I was blessed. Weren't you blessed this last series? Big thank you to the pastor team and Pastor Raywin leading it boldly, courageously. Things we found out about Pastor Elizabeth five times, she said. A few weeks ago, if you weren't here, she shared her story about going to the DVMV and failing five times. I I thought after that, they'd just arrest you. Apparently not. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So I tore my patellar tendon. That's what happened. Uh, People have been asking, and people have been wondering, and some have been too polite to ask. So I'll just tell you what happened. I tore my patellar tendon. It, it, it ruptured. Christmas Eve, it was the sermon right after I talked about how old Pastor Steve was, <laughs> and he had just broken his wrist, and I said, you need to know your limitations. I found my limitation that evening. It was Christmas Eve, and my wife said, hey, pick up some of these uh, gifts for me on the ground. And so I bent down to pick up the gifts. I wasn't fighting ninjas. I wasn't in a tournament. I wasn't running for my life from a bear. I was bending over to pick up some very small gift boxes. And as I was on my way down, I thought, you know what? This isn't deep enough. I can go deeper. And so when I, I went deeper, I'm not going to do it now for my other knee to go, <laughs> it just snapped. But I thought, you know, it's no problem. So I, so that evening, I loaded, and I you know, my knee was hurting, but it was no problem. I, I loaded all the gifts in the car, and I bent my leg in the car, and we drove an hour one way, and we hung out there with family. Then the next day, I bent my leg back in the car, and I drove another hour to another place. And, then after, and after a while, I just thought, you know, this doesn't feel right. So I went to the doctor. Dr. Ragsack again, to the rescue. Sees me in the midst of a crowd, helps me get in, gets me an appointment with... Uh, With the um, orthopedic, with the, uh, is it orthopedic? Somebody help me. That's right, yeah, okay. And when I went in, the doctor said, so, what were you doing when this happened? This is an injury from from some kind of jumping or some kind of exertion of some sort. What were you doing? And I said, I was picking up a box. He said, was it a big box? And I said, no. It's a small box. It was a small box. Was it a heavy box? Doctor, you have to stop asking me these questions. He said, was it heavy? I said, no, it was it was a little gift box. He says, Oh. Interesting. And that's what gave out your leg? I said, yeah. And he said, had you been doing any strenuous things prior to? I said, yeah, well, you know, I was playing basketball on Sundays with the boys, but that's no big deal. He says, oh, okay. And he says, "Then what else? Have you been doing something else? Something was jumping. And I said, you know, I, I joined the volleyball intramurals at last year University. He said, oh, that shouldn't be problematic. Well, what happened? I said, well, the young people, I didn't want to let them win. He said, oh, that's what happened. <laughs> he said, that's, you've got emotional issues. He said, so you just kept playing? You, you felt your body? I said, yeah. I, I had to keep playing, man. Like, you know, I, I've been playing. And he says, well, but you're a football player, right? Because you've got the body of a football player. I said, no, I've never played football in my life. I'm Adventist. <laughs> <laughs> he says, you've never played football? You're the size of a football player. You're the size of a football player in your mid-40s playing a volleyball with a bunch of 20 year old He said, that was the problem. You hadn't completely, fully assessed where you are today versus where you were before. And he says, because you didn't assess who you really are today and where you are from where you were, You kept acting like you were still where you were. And so what happens is your body protested against your brain. And so I was broken. I thought about this wise, thoughtful conversation. Because I think about the Lord's Prayer and what it must have meant to those disciples when they first heard Jesus the anticipation of the Matthew community that's predominantly Jewish and and they're waiting for some kind of political, some kind of physical uprising. They're looking for the Messiah. They've been waiting for hundreds of years and finally this Yeshua shows up on the scene and then he shows them, he pours into them something new. He grants them a new vision. He begins to pray with them and the excitement that that must have struck With the people we're becoming something different liberation and freedom is at the door we are going to do marvelous and good tov good things in the world we live in and it struck me that maybe we as a christian community today have moved far from where we started And maybe we have not assessed ourselves enough. We've just come along and we've always believed that, yeah, we are still exactly those same Jesus followers. But maybe we're not exactly where we should be today in Christendom. We've traded dusty sandals for steeples and stained glass windows We've moved from spirit-led to production-led. We've lost our servant model for growth models. We've given up the collective good for the personalized, privatized faith. We've drifted away from koinonia to tax write-offs and nonprofit statuses. This prayer that Jesus taught, this Lord's Prayer, is recited by hundreds and thousands of congregations Weekly, millions each year have uttered these very words. Yet the words have lost its strength. We have become more inflexible. These are the words that the doctor uses. He says, "You you didn't assess yourself correctly. You thought who you were still who you were, and so you overused yourself. You overexerted, and you became inflexible and weak." The irony is you didn't feel weak. You thought you were strong, but inside there was a weakening because you had not assessed where you were. He said, you know, Icky, you need to stretch. Do you stretch? I said, yeah, when I yawn, I stretch. It feels good. He says, no, brother. He said, you can't act like the, 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 the 20-year-olds. You know, they come in there, they're eating a cheeseburger, drinking their big old Mountain Dew, you know. And they'll play. They don't need to stretch. But you, you are an old man. <laughs> stretch. You need to treat yourself differently. You have become inflexible and weak, and you didn't even know it. Church, could it be that Christianity today has become inflexible and wee weak and we don't even know it? And so, in our journey As in heaven, I want us to rediscover our purpose as a prayerful community centered in Jesus and compassionately engaged in our world for good. I want us to begin to relook at ourselves and wake up and become a body that will engage with the power of Jesus to transform the world. And I invite you to come along. Would you come with me? Okay, like 10 of us, good, praise the Lord. Jesus had 12, I need two more. (laughs) Would you come with me? Let's go. On that note, we have started in this book, 40 days. It is yours on your way out. Please fill out a form. We would love for you to write a vlog or a blog on it in your journey these next 40 days as we do this together. Let's start here. Jesus starts off the passage with some clarifications about what not to do. This is what not to do when we're praying. And there's two of them. It'll be up on the screen for you right here. No showing off, no empty words. When we're going to do prayer, prayer is not about show off or being fake. Prayer is not about empty words. Let's start with the first one. No showing off. Or another way to put this, don't Fake it. Turn to someone and say, don't be, don't be fake. Tell someone else, don't be fake. No faking it. No showing off. There are probably quite a few reasons why we fake through life. There's probably quite a few reasons why we show off. And, and, and I'm, I'm not here to pretend like I know all of the reasons. You know, one of them could be, as humans, we just don't like being vulnerable. We don't like showing who we are. We're afraid of of being denied or being hurt. We fear shame. So because shame might be connected to vulnerability, we don't want to be vulnerable. So we'd much rather show off and fake than be real. But to live prayerfully is to live authentically, truly, and honestly. And maybe uniquely to us Christians who... Have been a part of this Christian body, there is this idea that our spirituality is just between me and God. This is my spirituality. It's a privatized, I own it, it's my personal relationship with God. Most of us, uh, if you listen to the research from others, way more people that believe they are spiritual than they are religious. Because spirituality means it's my thing, it's mine. It's my preference, I go, I go and I be with God, and, and I don't really need a church body. Maybe I'll come and have a good worship, maybe I'll listen for a good sermon, but do I need all these people who might judge me? And so spirituality in our world is a lot easier to claim than being a part of a religious communal body. So a lot of people, I've, I've heard Christians over the years use this text as reason why they can be spiritual and personal and privatized faith theirs. this one here we'll look at it but whenever you pray go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you i've heard christians say see my job isn't to be uh, 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 out in the public. Mine is, is to be away with Jesus, away with God. I, I can go and, and it'll just be me and God, and God will do something in my life, and, and then I'll come and maybe maybe show up and be part of the community. Maybe not. But all I need is my secret place with God. But I think if we're listening with the ears of Matthew's congregation, his audience, it may be a little bit different, right? The word here, uh, room, in the Greek is tamion. Tamion means a secret room, a closet, or a chamber. So when we hear these words, King James Version will say, uh, it is your prayer closet. It is the place we go to, um, a a, a secret place, a secret closet, a secret chamber. To the ears of Matthias' people, who are predominantly Jewish, the Hebraic ears may hear prayer closet And think of talit. Everybody say talit. Talit. Talit means prayer shawl. And it was often considered a prayer closet. So if Jesus may have said, go to your prayer closet... What the listener at the time may be hearing is, ah, go into your prayer shawl, tal, meaning tent, and, and ith is little, so little tent, right? So this is their prayer closet. So in other words, what Jesus isn't saying is, go away to a secret place, just you and God by yourself. What he's saying is, when you are living in the world that you live in and you witness the things that are happening around you, there in that place can you still be with God what does that mean for us that means our faith is public that means I can be in a prayer space wherever I am I don't need to get away to the mountains though the mountains are good and if anyone has a cabin they'd like to let me borrow for a night I'm just joking but not really You don't need to to, to go hide away. It is not this privatized space where it's just you and God. If you have your prayer shawl or your prayer closet, you could be standing there next to the, the, uh, the Roman colonizer who continues to oppress your people. You could be near the prayer wall, you could be on the road to Galilee, you could be uh, there at the gates of Jericho where there's hunger and there are people who are looking for help. And in that place you come into your prayer shop. It is the visceral experience of seeing what is happening in the world and then responding in prayer. It is not for us to hide away from this world. We've got too many Christians saying, hey, we just got to go and get away from the world. Listen, you can't go and get away from the world. Wherever you go, guess what? The world follows you because you are a part of this world. Somebody say amen. Oh, no, we're going to go buy some, we're going to go buy some, you know, property where it's just me and my wife. Oh, the world's going to follow you there because you and your wife is there. We are supposed to be in this world, Christians who see what is happening around us, the humanitarian pains we see on the border, the injustices and the wrongs being done to our LGBTQIA siblings. We are to see these things and say, oh God, would you show us your face again? Teach us your way. We live here in this world. God, lead us to make a difference for the goodness of the kingdom. So, maybe instead of thinking of a personalized space where it's just you and God and you get away and no one else matters, maybe what Jesus is calling us to is an awareness of the world we live in and having an active, proactive prayer life that is collective and communal for our world wherever we find ourselves. Praying, praying in the thick of the crowd, praying on the road, in traffic, praying when we hear about injustices praying when we hear about lives lost praying when we hear things on the news that breaks our hearts may we move into our prayer space and say god what do you call of us today so second thing that god says don't do is no empty words no empty words God doesn't need our empty promises, our beautiful soliloquies, our poetic, perfectly rhyming, excellent prayers. God doesn't need those empty words. Empty words are words that feel good and sound impressive but have no meaningful effect. They're like empty calories, right? They're like the stuff we shouldn't eat that people always tell us. You don't want to eat that. You don't, don't eat that ice cream. Those are bad calories. You're going to eat them. And then you're gonna be hungry again. And I say to that, okay, I'll be hungry again. Praise the Lord. And I'll eat the ice cream, and I'll feel horrible. And then I'll be hungry again. And I gotta eat more calories. And 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 so what's being said here is no empty words. Text, verse seven. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases, as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Two days ago, I read an article about Rabbi Joshua Franklin. Rabbi Franklin is from the East Coast. And last week at our vision night, I used ChatGPT. Has anyone used ChatGPT? Few of you have, professionals, young people. Everyone else, turn to a young personal and ask them about it. ChatGPT is artificial intelligence. So it thinks It researches, it studies, and it cranks out answers and papers, and I hope none of you are going to cheat and use this later, but that's what it does. It just puts it out for you, and it does it in a matter of seconds. I used it last week to to talk about um, human engagement, and I was trying to make a point. Well, this rabbi, he said, I'm going to do one better. He asked ChatGBT, AI, uh, OpenAI, to write a 1,000-word sermon. ChatGPT kicked out the sermon and he read it to his congregation. Now, he, he, he gave them the caveat, uh, he gave them the, the, the precursor that he didn't write this. He said, um, I'm plagiarizing a sermon today. And when I'm done, I want you to guess who wrote the sermon. And then he goes on to read the sermon that ChatGPT puts out. This is not human people, this is artificial intelligence put out uh, a sermon. That was a portion of the Torah about intimacy and vulnerability. Intimacy and vulnerability. Artificial intelligence knows neither of those things. But it cranked out a 1,000-word sermon. And when he finishes his sermon, the, the, the congregation just, amen. He said, at that point, he was deathly afraid. Maybe he was definitely afraid because the servants were so much better than the ones he gives, I don't know. Maybe he's definitely afraid because an artificial intelligence that has no experience in intimacy or vulnerability wrote something that human beings can like enjoy. ChatGBT um, just recently has passed. The medical exam licensing board test, (laughs) it passed it. They put it to the test, ChatGPT ate it up and and, and passed it. It's written essays, poems, songs, layoff emails, dating profiles, ChatGPT has done it all. Rabbi says, it created an intelligent work, but it lacked empathy. It's reminded me that while it's important for us to craft our words, God desires from us more than just our words. Words can be crafted intelligently, they can be put together well, they can sound just fantastic and challenging, but if the life is not changed, the words are moot. God cannot be fooled by our pretty word compositions. Creating beautiful words don't matter to God nearly as much as living beautiful lives. My son and I, my son and I uh, went to Juice It Up this week, and I wanted to teach him how to use money because kids, they don't really use cash a lot, and so... We went in, I had a $20 bill, and I gave it to him, and I said, okay, you order our, our juices. And he ordered our juices, and the young and the man uh, uh, in the back, he was really gracious, he's looking at us, and he wants to talk to me, but, you know, I'm pointing, so my son's starting to talk to him, so he's trying to give him attention, and he pays for our drinks, and then he gets a $1 and a $5 back. $1 and a $5 back. And I said, son, you've got to tip him. He says, yeah, yeah, I should. Which one should I give? <laughs> And my gracious heart said, give the five. But I'm teaching my son how to be responsible. So I'm like, "Mm, he should give the one. And I looked at this young man who was in his, you know, maybe late teens. And I was like, he could really use the five. But I want to teach my son how to be responsible. And I said, give him the one, son. He said, okay, I'll give him the one. And he put the five. And he looked at it. And I said, good job. And then he said, okay, here you go, dad. And I said, oh, for me? All right, I will. And I put it in my pocket. And we get the drinks, and just as he's, this young man's had him, he's about 6'3", maybe, you know, handsome-looking young fella, he's passing me the drinks, and, he says, and he's got this kind of weird smile on his face now, and he's looking at us, and I'm looking back, and he says, hey. <laughs> I said, hey. He says, are you? Oh, no. <laughs> he said, are you? Are you the pastor at Los Angeles University Church? And I was like, we should have given the five. <laughs> I was wrong. (laughs) In trying to teach my son responsibility. I made him greedy. And now the guy's going to be like, he's a cheapo. (laughs) What's funny was that I didn't think about that until he recognized me. And then I was like, oh, no, I should change my ways. And I was thinking, why didn't I teach that from the beginning to my son? Why did it take this kind of of experience for me to change my mind? I should have just taught my son to be gracious from the get-go because if I'm going to talk about being a gracious Christian, I must be gracious in my actions. Somebody say amen. amen. Our words, as beautifully crafted as they are, are never as important as our actions. God, He cannot be fooled by our pretty word compositions. Creating this should propel our Lord's Prayer from this beautiful way of collectively ending our worship time together like we normally do and moving us into the agenda of goodness, breaking through into the world all week long through our community's life. They should see it in us when we're at the Stater Brothers. They should see it in us when we're at Juice it Up. They should see it on us when we're at um, Five Points over here where there's crazies and we're all driving and we want to hurt each other. They should see it in the way we deal with our frustration. They should see it in our parenting. They should see it in our, in our marriages. They should see it in our professional way we deal with people. They should see the goodness in God of God in all that we do. It should propel us to be better. So, Jesus starts off into the actual Lord's Prayer, and I'm only going to touch on a couple words here, and we'll end out, and we'll, we'll catch back up next week. Pray then this way, and Jesus is basically saying, this is the pattern, this is the idea, this is, you know, this is the model you should use when you're praying. You don't have to pray it exactly this way, but these are the things you should think about and consider, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So we've got the, we've got the relationship of intimate parent, a, a parent who is a father, that's as close as you can get, a mother or a father, and then you have this intimate parent also a part of the universe, the one who, whose name is hallowed or made holy, not by us, but by God. God makes God's name holy. And and God is this God who's not just an intimate, relational being to me, but is the one who rolls out the cosmos, the one who breathes and life is, the one who spat and the world and the universe exists, this one who made galaxies, this one who, who, who all other things in the universe derive life from is also my intimate parent. Abba. R. Our father. Our is plural, first person plural possessive. And in some way or shape or form, that that hour that is a statement that says, God is an intimate parent that belongs to me and that i belong to we cannot own god because god is too large and too big and yet in some way and form because it's first person plural possessive it means that me and this god we 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 have an ownership of each other we share a breath we live together we love together we defend together we are for each other it is the very place by which we say, I know that person. I know my dad. My dad knows me. These, this is my parents. My daughter, when she was in kindergarten, man, I was telling my children's business, they're gonna hate me when I grow up. In kindergarten, I got a report back from the teacher who had spoken with the supervisor on the yard, on the, on the field. And what happened was there was a second grader who was pushing my daughter around, who was trying to trip her, right? And so the supervisor tells the teacher, while she was trying to, while the kid kept trying to trip her, she just pushes him down on the ground, boom. And the supervisor said to the teacher, I was so proud in that moment. (laughs) She said, go girl, always stand up for yourself. And so she she told the teacher, but I can't just not say anything. I'm the teacher. I'm supposed to, you know, sound like, hey, don't do that. And so she said, I, I said to Michaela, Michaela, but you know not to do that, right? And Michaela turned to me, she said. Michaela turned to me and said, do you know who my dad is? Oh, snap. Do you know my dad? Do you know who he is? I was like, girl, I don't even know who I am. Why are you... Put my business out like that, y'all. Because in that moment, my daughter knew she had a calling and a relational ownership of her dad and her dad her. There was a shared bond there. She was she probably was in the wrong place. You know, I said, I, I'm so sorry. You, you know, I'm broke. I, I'm nobody. And they said, we, we get it. We get it. And maybe she was off in understanding who her dad really was. But the statement still speaks to the fact that Michaela had an ownership with her dad. And she knew that her dad had an ownership with her. We were, we are one. Our. Our. Our is also plural. Which means you and I don't get to own God for ourselves God is communal and collective God loves me the Adventist and loves my friends who are Catholic and loves those who are atheist God loves the scientist God loves the Aquarian God loves the accommodation the blue-collar worker and the student this is God when I start owning God, like I can speak for God, like God should only love me, I am in the wrong. I am to come alongside God and proclaim this hour. This is our God. This is our dad. And our love must reflect that. If our love runs short of this hour, then we are not loving the way God loves. Our. Finally, turn to somebody and say, What's for lunch? <laughs> What's for lunch, Elizabeth? We'll make this quick. I'm hungry. <laughs> Finally, this last word, Abba. Abba is not Greek, nor is it Hebrew, interestingly enough. There is a wide consensus about the word Abba. It's a colloquial term used in Jesus' day in the language that is most common. It is an Aramaic word, Abba. It means dad or father. It's a relation of intimacy. And while we cannot use Father for God completely and exclusively and wholly, because God absolutely is Mother to us too, amen? There is meaning in Abba, this intimacy, this one who claims me. Jesus uses Aramaic. Because it's common terms. But usually, when you pray in these sacred things, these are, remember, these are predominantly Jewish people, so they're listening. When you pray, you would, what, what language do you pray in to make it sacred and holy and right? Hebrew, correct. So when you pray, you're supposed to pray in Hebrew. Jesus starts the prayer in Aramaic, which is a common tongue. Why would Jesus begin to teach how to pray about the God of the universe in a common tongue? Because it reminds the people that God does not belong just to one sacred group. But God is indeed the Father, the Abba, the Dad of us all. All of us. Jesus makes a bold statement that God is accessible to everyone, not just some of us, but all of us. The prodigal son story, that dad, you remember Timothy Keller, the theologian and author, uh, purports to have this this dad who further disgraced himself because he hitched up his gown and ran to the son who wished he was dead. This son is is considered foreign, unclean, no good, and yet when the dad sees him, he's not chosen any longer, he's not in with the village, he's an offset, off-brand foreigner When Jesus sees him, when the Father sees him, he rolls up his gown and he runs a very disgraceful thing to do in the community. Because the son who was lost is now found. Abba, this is the one that Jesus is praying to. Who has an intimate and deep and beautiful relationship. Who looks for and calls for and comes after us over and over And over again, I'm going to read you a letter. This letter was written in 1995. Pastor Elizabeth, were you born yet? (laughs) This is what paper looks like. (laughs) This was called email. (laughs) Y'all remember this? This is a letter. I have a couple of these that I keep near me from my dad. I'd been living up, uh, oh, man, I'm going to start crying. Don't do it. Come on. We got to finish. I was living up at Angwin Mountain at the time. I wasn't in school. I was just hanging out up there. And my dad would just write. And he'd try calling. and. Back then, there were no cell phones. There was no real, correct, direct way to do it. And so sometimes we'd talk and sometimes we wouldn't. But my dad wouldn't stop writing. I'll share it with you a letter. October 1, 95. Dear Ricky, I was really happy and relieved when at last I was able to talk to you this morning. I've been praying for you, and definitely, God is good to you. I tried to reach you all week because you were desperate. Then, if you were desperate enough, I would just drive up to see you and give you money. Living in L.A., undocumented, we didn't have money. My dad was gonna find a way to drive, eight hours to find me on a mountaintop, just to give me money. And give you money. But I had to talk to you first because it would cost us at least $300 to get there, and back. However, I am enclosing $100 in this letter. And the other 200 I told you over the phone, I will send it this morning. Hope this is enough to start you off. Icky, give your problems to God always. And he will solve it for you. As I have always said, this God is the God that spoke only And the whole world was created. He can change things in the world for you. Also, we love you dearly. All we can do is pray for one another. Please do not hesitate to call me. Drop me a short note whenever you have a minute and in need of anything, yours lovingly. After this letter, I decided it was time to pack up and come home. Because I thought I should stay away because of the shame of not being able to finish school. Maybe I'd just hang out up there. But you know what? I had an Abba. I had an Abba who owned me. And he knew, no matter where I was, he was going to come for me. There's an intimacy, a depth, a beauty when one knows you and would do anything for you. And finally, God does not fully and exclusively represent the title Father, but in this context, it was important for the Matthew community. And T. Wright takes note in his book, Lord, in his prayers, that the first occurrence in Hebrew Bible of the idea of God as the Father, when he, when Moses comes to Pharaoh and he says, I have chosen Israel as my son, my firstborn. Let my people go. So when the people hear this, that not only hear about this Abba who has this intimate desire to love and care for and run after us, but it's also the Father who brings liberation And freedom and goodness and justice and equality this is what it means when we say our father in heaven it means that this this being this God is intimately in love with us would do anything for us and wants us to be the agency of freedom and justice liberation and goodness This is not some man-contrived idea about justice and rightness. This is a God mandate for us to be the people of goodness in this world. Mark Labberton succinctly puts it this way. He says, we should not fool ourselves into thinking that it's enough to feel drawn to the heart of God without our lives showing the heart of God. So today... As we close, I want you to consider that. What does it mean not just to be drawn into worship, into the heart of God, but also to live lives showing the heart of God? So the doctor told me, he said, Icky, you got two options. Real simple. Here's the first option you can not do anything about your leg. They had had me in a brace already. wasn't this really nice one. It was kind of just a thing. He said, look, if you just this is the most comfortable and easy route. He said, if you just leave the brace on, it'll eventually just heal. I said, yeah. He said, but the thing is, it'll heal, but you won't be able to use it. I said, well, that's not much of an option. But he says, no, but listen, listen, it's going to be more comfortable. You won't go through much pain. You'll just keep the brace on for a few more weeks. And then, you know, it'll just, you'll be able to use it. You won't be able to run or jump. No more, no more games. Um, But you won't feel any pain. You'll have a limp, but you won't feel any pain. It'll be comfortable. It'll be the most comfortable route. If you want to move forward, just, you know, just take it. It'll be nice and easy. And you just have to stop doing all the other stuff I said doc what's the other option he says option number two is that we we take you into surgery he said now that's the most painful option he said in this particular situation here because what happens is when the patellar gets tore or or ruptured apparently the muscle uh, uh, atrophies up and then so they've got to like pull it down and then they they drill through your bone and then they suture it with some super fiber bionic fiber of some sort that my brother-in-law has in his house, but I don't know why. And then they run it through the knee bone, and then they anchor it down. And he's like, it's gonna be painful. It's about a three to six month process. It's a long process, and you'll be in a lot of pain. You'll have to put your leg up for a long time. You're not gonna be able to get around. You won't be able to shower really well. It's just, it's a tough route. I said, yeah, and he says, but, it, well, if you want to be able to play again, if you wanna be able to run again, if you want to be able to get down and go again, you've got to be able to push and go through the pain. So you can stay in a comfortable pace and just limp along until death, or you can go through the pain and become strong again so that you can once again do the things you were meant to do. And I said, you are pepping me up. You, you're my, right now, you're my coach. I, I, I'm going to go for the, for the pain. Is that the right choice? He said, well, I don't know. Try it. Right choices. That's up to you. I don't want you yelling my name in the middle of the night. I don't want you blaming me. Show you a quick picture here. Ooh. 27 Staples. They opened that bad boy up like this. Drilled through the bone. Tied it up. Closed me up. I wasn't even supposed to open it up like that, but my wife, who's a nurse, she gets, like, really curious. She's like, can I open it? No, don't. Can I? I'm a nurse, though. No, don't do it. And then when I start nodding off, she'll like start taking something, hey, what are you doing? No, Just, just look, can I look, can I look? You're disgusting. And of course I let her look. But I had to make that choice because I don't wanna just be comfortable until I die. Church, we gotta make some choices. Do we wanna just be comfortable till we die? Or do we want to do some heart-wrenching work? Get down into it. What does it mean to love deeply and and be compassionate and and be like Jesus? Do we want to to dig down there? That digging is going to hurt some and it's going to transform some. And there's some operations that we need to do. But as we do it, we will begin to find our spirit and our voice again. It will draw us to where Jesus was when he started this movement, when he called people to come follow. Church, that's what I want. I don't wanna just sit comfortably until I die. I wanna live out my life through the fullest calling of Jesus Christ. So, today as we close out our service, and as we say the Lord's Prayer together in just a few moments, praise team, come on up. I want you to breathe it in. And I want us communally to say it with power and vigor in a renewal of our spirit to not just be another church that's cool, not just be another church that's attractive, that's got some cool strategies. No, we want to be a church that's for real. We want to do as God does. We want to own and be owned by our Abba. And we want to move into this world, transforming it with the love of Jesus.